0: Hello and welcome to the Wagtails podcast. My name is Megan Corcoran and I'm the director of the Wagtail Institute. In this podcast, I invite some pretty cool people to come and have a conversation with me on all things trauma, healing, education and well-being. I started this podcast as I realised some of the biggest learning that has happened in my career has been through meeting really great people that are working in the field and having great conversations with them. In this episode, I'm excited to be joined by someone who I consider to be a mentor and a great influence for me in my career, Graham Baird. Graham is a psychologist who has done lots of work with schools, out-of-home care systems and one-on-one work with clients. Let's dive into the episode. All right, really excited. We're up to the fourth episode of the Wagtails podcast. And today I'm joined by someone who I've known throughout my whole career so far, actually, someone who I would consider a mentor of mine. I've got Graham Baird here. Welcome, Graham.
1: Thank you, Megan. It's great to be here. And I appreciate what you say about me being a mentor in your (laughs) early career. Thank you.
0: Not even early career. Well, I mean, I guess it's still early career. Who knows? Um, But Graham, could you just tell us a bit about yourself? So who is Graham Baird and what is it that you do?
1: Okay, so I mean, who I am professionally, you know, I'm a psychologist. Uh, I work in two practices, one a traditional You know depression anxiety type suburban practice and another specialist practice that works with people with the DSM diagnosis of borderline personality disorder BPD Um, these people are often highly suicidal and I work with them using a therapy called DBT Mm -hmm. dialectical behavior therapy so in addition to that I do quite a lot of work with schools Uh, in terms of helping schools, helping teachers, managing challenging behaviour, reducing it, that type of thing. Yeah Yeah, and
0: that's how I guess we met. So I met you I think it was back in 2011 it would have been. That's right. Um, So I know you've done a lot of work in the out-of-home care sector as well so could you tell us a little bit about the work you've done in those spaces and why you sort of led to schools from there?
1: Yeah so it started out, I mean my early career was in out-of-home care when it was called children's homes. So it was a long time ago, but to give you an idea of the contrast, when I started out in residential care, I was working in a uh, children's home here in Melbourne that had 140 children on the campus. Oh, wow. And which 40 were babies. Um, oh, so wow. it was very different then and it is now. Uh, and I, then I worked in residential care and I did a number of reviews of residential care and a couple of ministerial reviews forward. Juvenile correct uh, juvenile detention centres, uh, Malmesbury and, and Parkville. Mm. So I've sort of been in practice as a private psychologist, but done quite a lot of work in the in, in the public sector as well.
0: Yeah, interesting. So there was 140 like kids at the first home that you worked at. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Wow. And so now, what do we see in out of home care?
1: Well, what we see now is residential care, where you know you might have three, four, and often only two young people. In a facility so I think you'd be aware that the uh, the government has struggled with residential care mm. it's not it's been very difficult to provide trauma-free care in residential care because of the nature of the staffing model mm. and because of the uh, complex uh, nature of the young people in that uh, type of care yeah so they have really struggled with that
0: absolutely but I know that that's something you're passionate about and it's part of your work now like, correct me if I'm wrong but I know it's something that you're are working towards is making sure those people that do choose to work in those spaces are trained correctly and can reduce trauma. Is that correct? Yes.
1: So I did a lot of training for one organisation who has a lot of residential care. And so I was doing the orientation training, which was around how to manage difficult behaviour and also professional boundaries. So that was, you know, that's interesting work because you have people who are coming into the field who are so optimistic about Mm. what they can do and i guess what i observe is they quickly become disheartened when they face the realities of day-to-day shift life in residential care
0: yeah yeah absolutely and i know we've had conversations about this too even just with teachers because mm. um I, I made mention at the start that you popped up a few times in my career. So I know we met in 2011. Mm. Um, I was a graduate teacher at the time working in a pretty um, trauma-affected school, I would say. I recall. Yes. <laughs> um, but then you popped up quite a few times. So you actually guided me when I was moving into leadership as well. And you actually did some coaching work with me when I was a leader.
1: Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you were easy to work with. I mean, in the sense, the, the idea of if you're the mentor rather than the mentoree, if I can use that language. Yep. If you're working with someone who's really keen to learn and is not defensive like you were, it's very easy to work with them. But if you're working with someone who's defensive and Mm. feels that you're criticizing them, it's very difficult to Mm. work with them.
0: Yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting. Um, because I do remember in those early parts of my career too, it was a very stressful environment. We did have a lot of incidents. Yes. Um, the, the clientele at that school was all out of home care at the time. So that school moved over time to a different, slightly different model. Yes. But in mean, 2011, we were all out of home care students. That's right. Um, so we did have high incident rates. And I actually can kind of reflect on um, us having conversations around my stress levels. Yes. Um, and managing that and looking at how it should decrease over time. So working in the space you should feel an element of decrease in that. Yes. Um, Yeah, did you want to elaborate on that? Do you remember those conversations? Or
1: I I do from two perspectives. One is from you in terms of, and other people who were there who were stressed. Mm. But I think what was really important to me about those discussions is that I was in the same situation when I was your age, you know, in my early 20s, And really struggling with um, quite violent and aggressive behavior Mm. and it's this idea that there's someone around a mentor around who can come in and literally tap 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 you on the shoulder and sort of say look why don't you try doing this rather than that and Mm. see if that works and I was very conscious that in my early career I had three or four really great mentors In training me, even though I was a trained psychologist and I knew all about the theory, Mm. practice is very difficult. And you need that mentor to say, listen, Graham, you're not doing a great job there and perhaps you should try doing this. Yeah. And I was very conscious of that uh, in terms of those times when we were at that school is to give the person the opportunity to give them feedback and to try something else yeah. and see if it works.
0: Yeah. And look, to be honest, those conversations and that that early part of my career um, made my career, to be honest. Thank you. I actually don't think I would have managed that first year without yeah. the support of a couple of mentors that I actually had through that period of time. Like, there was yourself, and I also had a, an amazing campus leader. That's true. Um, at the time, too. So I feel like I was really privileged in that, that early part of my career. Yeah. Um, because it is really challenging work. And I think, as you said, the theory can give you it's almost an understanding of why the behavior might be occurring and mm-hmm. an understanding of what that young person may need but when you go to practice it is very different it's very real and very like a human interaction going on and you feel it all in yourself as well
1: it's very personal you mm. know because I I share your thoughts my early mentors were the ones that gave me the skills to be able to work with really traumatized young people it wasn't my lecturers at uni or anything mm. like that mm-hmm. And you have to have the ability to take on, you know, reasonably negative feedback from, from your mentors. And you know, in those days, the, the feedback I got from one of my mentors is that I always looked angry. And that was causing the children or the young people to become distressed and more yeah. traumatised. Yep. And I really had to work on that to make mm. sure in my facial expression and my tone of voice, I was calm. Yep. And that was a huge learning.
0: Uh, it's so interesting that you got that feedback. You never gave this to me, but sh- um, young people gave this feedback to me. Was that I had the opposite problem? I looked too happy all the time. Yes. Um. And in their distress, they found that triggering. Like they would be like, "What the fuck are you laughing at right now?" Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a difficult balance, isn't yeah. it? In in the sense that if you if they perceive you as laughing at them, then mm. they're clearly going to become distressed. Yeah. If they're threatened by you and. You know, I'm at that stage. I was six foot two, and I still have a booming voice. So it was. I easy... think you're still
0: six foot two. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, my children say otherwise, but thank you for that. But you know, I think that I had to be very conscious of my sheer, the the. the my voice and my physical size, mm. dealing with traumatised people, particularly young women who had often been traumatised by males.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I know we're talking about probably some harder elements of the work really is, mm. um, is, is even just body language and understanding ourselves when we're dealing with behaviour. Mm-hmm. Would you say there's a bit of a formula for people to be aware of if they are in this space and they might be listening and thinking, I'm struggling with managing behaviour right now? Like what sort of guidance do you give people at the moment around um, behaviour?
1: I would ask you know there are two things I think one is that you need to uh, there needs to be a certain distance between you and the young person and that should be about 1.5 metres if they're really distressed 1.5 metres that gives you time to get out of the way if they decide to hit you but it also it's not close enough to be threatening yeah but the number one thing that I advise people to do is to monitor the tone of your voice listen to your voice okay don't Talk too quickly, okay, and don't shout. Mm. They are the two things that I think we should all keep in mind. Yeah.
0: Yeah, really helpful. Really helpful to hear that as well, actually. Um, so I know we mentioned as well that you were sort of coaching me as a leader. Um, that was actually formally part of your role at the time as well. You were doing leadership coaching, um, and we were talking about how some people can come in early career and be really enthusiastic and think they're going to come in and make all this amazing change. Mm. Um, and I'm just curious as to sort of what you do when you're supporting people in that space as well. So what sort of happens in that early career stage when people come in really, um, that almost that Pollyanna view of like, I'm going to come in and make a huge difference here.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a thing that I've thought a lot about since those days. And I guess I'm looking at it in, in, in like three stages. I mean, one is that the new person um, has to be able to feel safe at work you can't work therapeutically unless you feel safe. So Mm. there needs to be that stuff that we spoke about before, being confident to work with people who are very traumatised or very distressed. So for sake of a label, let's call that de-escalation. You have the the ability to prevent violence from happening, but you can manage it if it happens.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And so the next stage is how to be effective with people and I think that's more about listening Um, the the word the phrase typically is to be person-centered or Mm people-centered and I think that's something that people have to learn so I I think that they there's a difference between a lay support person and a professional support person Mm. the lay person sort of believes that if I have a really good relationship with the young person and I give them advice that will help the young person in their life The professional person views it slightly different they say that the relationship is a way of asking trying to understand the young person to identify their own solutions so there's a difference one is listening and not telling and the other one tends to be telling Mm. but the overwhelming problem is the third stage is as you say why do so many good people become disheartened so quickly so In the work that I do, I have these what I call three dialectical dilemmas and I'll I'll just go through one of them to illustrate it. It's called the dialectical dilemma is two opposing uh, opposites, neither of which are completely true. So at one level, early in Korea, we believe that we're omnipotent. We can bring about change really quickly. But when we get into it, we begin to realize it's harder than we think Mm -hmm. and we become helpless. We feel we're helpless, but we experience those people as negative they've become very quickly negative about the young people they're working with.
0: Mm.
1: And it's always surprising to me how quickly people switch from feeling that they're going to bring about great change to becoming very negative, verbally negative, verbally abusive, and occasionally physically assault the young person. It's Mm. a very quick transition. And so the work that I do is I work on this dialectical dilemma with them to try to get them to find a space that is not at the extremes because the extremes are wrong. Mm. I've got to get them to come back into the into the middle ground.
0: Yeah, I find that really interesting to think about, actually. Um, I guess because it was never part of my um, experience of just thinking that I could come in and make huge mm. amounts of change. I think when you're working with young people, who have experienced so much trauma. Mm. Um, there's a lot of small wins that can be really noticed and celebrated yeah. and that's that's what fuels you to keep going, I think. Um, and any time I felt jaded or, um, you know, disheartened, it was much more about the system than it ever was about young people. Um, so I find it really hard to sort of relate to that concept and to think about people being in the field feeling that way about the young people themselves.
1: It's interesting, yeah. I mean, yep. in the sense, your, your issue would be with the system that created them, created the problems that the young person's experience.
0: There's that, and there's also the systems that are now supporting them that yeah. um you know they're kind of stuck in. Like we talk about how the government has issues around residential care.. Yeah. The staffing model's an issue. Yeah. Um, school systems an issue, you know, school systems like young people are still experiencing yeah. um, you know, rejection from school. Yes. Um, it's it's not modeled to really suit their needs. Um so it's, it's more those systemic issues that like would would fuel my disheartened um <laughs> stance at times.
1: So it'd be interesting, going back to our conversation about mentors. I mean, mm. if you didn't have mentors, would you have been more at risk at moving to the negative end? Of that continuum,
0: I think so for sure. I think it would have been around me not managing my stress well. So, yeah. and when you're not managing your stress well, that's when you really can yes. flip into that disheartened view. Yeah. Um, and maybe more stress around the young people as well, because it was probably the guidance from yourself, um, and the campus leader that really got me to understand the young people, mm-hmm. um, and lower my own stress levels to to respond appropriately for them.
1: It's interesting because mm-hmm. I guess one of the unknowns here, for uh, you know, is what are the attributes or personality traits of someone who can do this work and not become inherently negative. And I've never really worked out what they are, only to come to the conclusion it's very difficult at interview to tell oh. who's going to be successful and who's yeah. not. Yep. It, it's an interesting dilemma. It yeah. is a very
0: interesting dilemma. Yeah. I know we've had lots of conversations about the best ways to recruit. Yeah. Um. Do you have any recommendations around the best ways to recruit? I know we're saying at, at interview level we can't really pick um, yes. who, who will cope and who won't.
1: The interviews that I've done, um, both at the schools that we're at and that you know about, it seems to me that the people doing the interview are very influenced if the person says what they want to hear.
0: Mm. So if
1: they talk about being passionate about helping young people and all of that sort of stuff, that makes them feel really good. Mm. But there needs to be a way of uh, assessing whether they ha- have the skills or the competencies about able to be able to do the job. So there is a, um, an interview technique called behavioural event interviewing or targeted selection. Um, I think it's the best you you can do in the sense it's not perfect by any sense, but it gets you away from this notion that they're saying all the things that's making me feel warm inside, therefore I'm going to employ them. Mm. So targeted selection or behavioural event in- interviewing would be the two go-to ones that I would look at.
0: And what do they include?
1: Well, it, it's the, the famous question, and um, you will have heard it, you know, uh, tell me about a time you achieved something and were very were pleased by it. Yeah. So what's happened with this technique is that in the sense, it, to some degree, it's been bastardised in the sense that people say something and they're not really, the interviewee doesn't really dig deep enough to understand whether they have the skills or competency to do the job. So... One of those interviews, behavioural event interviewing or targeted selection, would take an hour to do oh, to right. do it properly, to be able to get to the level to determine whether this person's got the skills or competency to do the job. Yeah, so in yep. the sort of 15 minutes that they do, you know, along with three other people in the room asking questions and a whole lot of other questions about other things, there's no time to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because we always tried to implement questions that would give scenarios, like being like, you know, here's a real example of a behaviour challenge that we've had recently. Mm. And then ask, you know, what would you do to look after it? Or tell us about a time that you've you've experienced, you know, dysregulated behaviour from a young person and what did you do?
1: Yeah. So, the, um, the, sorry, the, the latter question I think is a better predictor yeah. than, than what would you do in the future is a hypothetical yeah what you did do in in the future uh, what you did in the past is a better predictor
0: mm. but
1: it becomes the question what if you've had someone who's really had limited experience yeah yeah what yep. do you look for
0: yeah well that? that's that's the tricky part because we often did have people who had limited experience yeah um you know and you'd get an example that was so like to us it would be a very low level behavior yeah Um, And then in our heads, we're thinking of something pretty extreme. Yes. Um, And just seeing, you know, that that's that's also the world that they're coming from.
1: So, I mean, I've got a a good example about that. I once did a a job for one of the uh, large uh, merchandising short stores here in Australia, and they wanted to recruit summer casuals. And we determined that the criteria was self-confidence is what what we're looking for. And I interviewed this young woman who was Indian, and she was umpiring uh, under-17 cricket matches. Okay. And so she would give a, a decision that's out, and these boys would try and intimidate her to say that it wasn't out. <laughs> and when I took her through the process about what was going through her mind when she made the decision, what went through her mind when these boys objected to her decision, there was very clear evidence that this young woman had a lot of self-confidence. Yep. Therefore, you'd make the assumption that if I'm self-confident in one area, I can make that transition to another Mm, area. mm -hmm. But it was a very interesting example of someone demonstrating self-confidence in a highly charged environment. You know, 11 young men telling her she's wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, good example, actually. And I do remember in some of the coaching that you've done with me as well, you would actually often ask me questions similar to that to get me to reflect on decisions I made in Mm. practice as well. Um, so for example, I know there was a day where there was a young person who was really heightened, mm. um, and I had a really great relationship with him. So after the fact, I went out to see him and I had a conversation with him. And when I came back and unpacked it with you, you really challenged me on some of the things I shared with that young person. And, yeah. and you asked me to really consider why I use language I used and, and see where my thinking had come from as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah so, I've got really like distinct memories of some of that.
1: So, so from your point of view, Megan, what would you see are the attributes of a good mentor versus a less Effective mentor.
0: Well, I think some of the benefits I had from from mm. um, my experience was that you really got me to reflect on my own practice. Yes. Um, you never told me what I should or shouldn't do. Um, you always gave me examples of um, mm. like, here's here's how I want you to feel eventually. So mm. you might be stressed right now, but over time, this is this is how mm. you should feel in the field. If you don't start to feel like that, well, then consider whether it's for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you really got me to reflect on myself.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and my own practice, and just to form those learnings myself. You think yeah, and it was someone to unpack with. I think that was really important. Yes. Yeah, like having time and space to actually come back. So rather than me just go out, visit a young person, think I've done a great job, yes. and be like, yeah, he's coming back to school. Great, I did it. Yeah. Um, you would really be like, well, actually, no, let's let's see if we could do it even better next time.
1: Yeah. I mean, the great problem in, in our profession is that you have no quality uh, assurance on what happens in that conversation.
0: Yeah, Anything yeah. Anything could
1: happen. And I contrast that to say to the health system, whereby... You have a nurse who's doing a suture, stitches. Now in the sense you can watch him or her do it. You can have a look at the product AIDA and say it was good, bad or different. Or they could get infected and you sort of say, well, you stuff that up. But in our line of work, there's no record. We don't know what people are doing when they're interacting with uh, clients or young people.
0: It's so true. And I found that that was a really hard part of lockdown as well. Mm. It was much harder than having everyone on campus. Yeah. Um, Because as a leader, I walked between classrooms all the time. I knew if there was an incident. I knew Mm. if there was a kid having a challenge, Um, you know, and I could go support someone or I could reflect with them immediately after. But in lockdown, I had no idea what was happening in every online room, in every phone call. Yeah, I know. Um, And you can read case notes, but how 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 accurate accurate. are are case notes, you know, and how in-depth are case notes. Um, Yeah, so that was a period of time where we really – supporting practice of staff was really tricky through that time. And then seeing them return to campus afterwards um, was very tricky because for some of them, we employed them during lockdown. Yes. And then their experience was just phone calls and online rooms.
1: And they were in a bit of a shock when they yeah. young people came back. Yeah. But I think the the challenge for the field generally, I mean, now is that um, what I might what is called direct observation. How do we know what youth workers, wellbeing officers, are actually saying to young people? so that we can give them feedback about the effectiveness. Mm. I think that's a really big challenge. Um, Absolutely.
0: And because it's not the kind of field either where it would be okay to be like, I'm just going to record this conversation for quality <laughs> assurance. <laughs> There's like sort of no way we can do it unless we are sitting side by side with them yes. while they're having that conversation. And even then, that's still really tricky yes. because if they're saying something challenging to that young person yes. um, in that moment... It's,
1: it's very... Yeah, it, it's a difficult one to do. Um, yep. the, the two options there are for the the young person to fill out some sort of survey on how um on the communication skills of the worker Mm. you know that boils down to about five questions on a seven point scale yeah that's one option i think but i think we need to sort of find other options in order to improve the practice in generally
0: that could be a really interesting one i think like um, yeah, some young people would love that opportunity mm. um, and would feel really empowered by it. Mm. Others would find it annoying. And then there's some that I think would be like, well, they didn't buy me McDonald's and I really wanted McDonald's, so stuff them, they're getting all zeros.
1: <laughs> Look, that's true. But over the uh, long-term average would give you some sort of sense. Um, I, I just think that, I mean, I wouldn't go down that path at the moment, but you know, we calculate um, there are something like 1.2 million support workers, caseworkers, yeah. youth workers in Australia yep. supporting about... You know, point 4. four million vulnerable Australians. Yeah, we don't ha- have a lot of data on how well those interactions are going, mm. and I think we do need to get better at that to order. So it's to lift um, outcomes for those four point four million Australians.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because I think you're highlighting such a key point here too that everything with this work is very relational. So even with the teachers doing this work, yes. the youth workers, the social workers. It's very relational because yes. it's not like a toolkit of strategies where you just go out and go, here's your toolkit, go apply them. Yes. It comes very much down to the relational skills, doesn't it?
1: It, it is. But again, the measurement problem is is really interesting on, you know, relationships. So, you know, there was a, a famous study done in the 90s where something like 85% of American managers said they had above average interpersonal skills. <laughs> now, if you ask youth workers um, and caseworkers and support workers, do you have a good relationship with your clients i mean you're going to get the same thing aren't you they're not you going are. to say i have poor relationships with clients yeah so you, i agree with your relationships are critical yep. but how do we give feedback to someone to say well look the relationship is effective in fact it might not be good you know it's, yeah. it's a difficult issue
0: it's always been a really difficult one because even as a leader supporting staff um, it was always really hard to support staff to have professional relationships mm. with young people that were still very warm, mm. safe, comfortable, but weren't blurring boundaries. Mm. Um, that were still empowering them to be autonomous. Like there were so many parts to it that were really tricky to um, to guide it, as well.
1: So the professional boundary stuff mm. is really important early career. Yeah, because you have this idea. I guess some people seem to have a view that. The more I tell the young person about me and particularly my difficulties, then the better it is going to be for the young person.
0: Mm.
1: Now, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Yeah. But you need to you need to be careful about what information you reveal and when. Mm. You want to be authentic, but you've got to be careful about how much you reveal. Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. There's that whole idea of like they're trying to be relatable, but ultimately... Oversharing and making it about themselves is actually really challenging for the young person.
1: Yes, mm. that's how the young person experiences it. This is all about you telling me about the trauma in your life. You know, mm. so again, it, it's something that needs to be addressed early in career. And again, mentors play a very important role because I think all of us early in career. Have trouble with boundaries and have to come back, Mm. but we need someone there to help us bring it back into into alignment.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because I remember that that was such a challenge as well. Because you've just like you walk in and you've just got all these young people right there, Mm. and you're like, all right, well, I know relationships really important. I'm going to try and connect. I'm going to try and be safe and predictable for them, Um, and you're putting all that effort into it. And then the dynamics just start to build, and you just you're responding to what's coming up as well. Yeah, um, it's it's just so many moving parts really as well. Mm. I remember when I started, I um. I really knew I wanted to do this work, but I didn't know a lot about it. (laughs) And I remember as a graduate teacher, like walking into this school, um, I actually got interviewed twice, so um, it was quite funny. So um, I I think the first interview went quite well, but then I got a call from um, the head of Mm -hmm. campus to say, we really want to consider you, but we actually do want to bring you back in for a second interview. Um, And the second interview was very much more like throwing scenarios at me to see if I really understood what I was about to walk into. Um, and just seeing how I would respond to situations. And also, it was quite caring of the head of campus to consider it, because yeah. i had just moved to Melbourne. I was quite young. Um, and she even threw in there, well, you're going to be traveling quite a long distance, because I was living in the northern suburbs at the time, school was in the southeast. Um, She said, you're going to be traveling a long distance, and everyone who works here at the moment is, like, over 45. (laughs) (laughs) So she's like, you're not going to even make friends here. You know, like, you're (laughs) you're not going to meet, like, your social network here. Whereas if you went into a mainstream school, you know, you might meet a whole bunch of people in their 20s as well. Um, So she really thought about every aspect of of me and whether it was okay for me to take the job as well in that time. Which I thought was really interesting. And then when I started, she... um, yeah, she started talking to me about the out-of-home care system and sent me out to residential care units before the school year started so I could see where the kids were living and meet them in their homes. Um, it was a big journey, really, to really just be like, all right, I'm going to try and understand this world before I jump into that classroom.
1: But I think the, the challenge the, the principal of the school at the time has is how do you make a prediction about this person who's had no experience? Mm. How how do I know whether they're going to be good, bad or indifferent? Um, and I think that's an interesting question. It uh, is. And it worked for you. Yeah. But I guess we can think of other people that we know uh, at other schools where it's been disastrous.
0: Oh, absolutely. And even as a leader, I've had times where, because we've had staffing shortages. Yes. Um, and you'll be on an interview panel and just go, oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, yeah. there's been times where there have been people that just seem so well suited to yes. the work. And then, you know, within a month, you're looking at them going, you were really stressed. Yes. And the young people aren't getting the best from you either. So, you know, how can we, what can we do here?
1: I think that's an important piece of work that the school, the alternative schools need to do is is both, what are the attributes that predict success Mm. when someone hasn't had experience? And how do you assess those?
0: Yeah. Do you have any inkling around that? Like, would you have any recommendations
1: Look, I I um I would I did a review for one of the large providers of residential care, and I came up with the criteria. Um, I could send it to you, and I don't know what you could you could add it. But um, one of them was self confidence. That that's true. But I I just struggle to remember there were four of them, and one was self confidence, and I but I couldn't get back to you. It's, mm, yeah, I'd be curious
0: because to... self-confidence without something supporting that could be really dangerous, <laughs> like with it, with another element at play.
1: Yes, but I guess definitionally in, in terms of how you define self-confidence as distinct from someone who's egotistical. Mm. So there, there was some aspect, um, and I'm trying to think of the right psychological word for it, is someone who's not overly emotional, who can keep their emotion it was self control i think was uh, the was yeah. the criteria yeah. so in the sense when you're when you're at the school and there's a major incident going down yeah. in the sense you can contain your emotions the urge to run or the mm. urge to attack yeah. and monitor your voice tone monitor your physical presence and keep calm so Self-control and self-confidence were two of them. Mm. I just can't remember what the other ones were. Yeah. And you should again, you know, going back to that young Indian woman who was an uh, an umpire. If you can demonstrate self-confidence under attack from eleven young men who are telling you you're wrong, you're likely to be able to do it in another environment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But we don't know, in we we don't know what the attributes or the competencies are. And we're not sure how to assess them. So you have mm. these, like we said before, you have an interview panel, three or four people, all firing questions, and it tends to be, you know, impressionistic. You know, they say the right things. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's so tricky. It's so it tricky. It is really tricky. Yeah, yeah. And especially now with the staffing shortage as well. Because yes. I just I mean, yeah, since the pandemic as well, people have been personally stressed and personally affected by a lot of different situations as well. So are they really feeling like they want to go and work in an environment with um, trauma-affected young people?
1: Yes. But again, I, I mean, I think COVID's had a massive impact on our society in so many levels. And that, the one that you identified is, is true. But again, I think the issue is, can we find people to mentor people mm-hmm. early in their career, to walk them through the sort of stuff that you talked about yeah. when, when you started and I started?
0: Yeah, absolutely. If we don't have
1: that, going, we're going to struggle.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Is there any tips around that? Then is that part of your model, anything that you provide? Like, do you look at ensuring there is a mentor system in play?
1: Yeah, we we have a, um, you know, we talked about that dialectical dilemma about how you, you know, you might feel that I'm omnipotent on one hand when I start, and I feel totally helpless on the other. And in the sense, there's a, a supervision uh, process which we train people in, is how to basically... Megan, it's really to ask the questions that you talked about that I may have asked you mm. uh, back in. So we're training people to ask certain questions that are reflective in nature to get the person to, to be reflective and so come to some sort of decision that it's, I'm not omnipotent. I can't bring about huge change in five minutes, but I'm not totally helpless either. So how do I bring them into the into the middle and then they have the skills to go about and do that? So, yeah, we can train people to do that, but it is a fair amount of effort to do that.
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting one too because I almost feel like mentorship's almost like important... The relationship's really an important element too. Um, So there are some people, you know, that may be in a leadership role, but the the team aren't really connecting with them or aren't really responding to them. When you get into that situation, you go, well, I don't really want to reflect on my practice with them.
1: Which I think is the problem with the current supervision model is that if the person doing your professional supervision is the person doing a performance review and all yeah. of that sort of stuff, yeah. it does create a, a degree of uh, uh, con- conflict and you might not be willing to sort of say, hey, I'm really struggling here because you're worried it'll turn up in your performance appraisal.
0: Yeah, that's right, that's right. And mm-hmm. I know for a long time I was sitting in that space as a leader where I was providing both supervision and performance reviews as well at the same time with the same people. Yes. Um, and it was a challenge of that model, for yeah. sure. It, yeah. It's
1: certainly an issue, but I, I guess I would say early in my career, um, I got that advice from those mentors, and they did do the performance reviews, so it, w- it worked out okay, but, you know, it was a different time.
0: Yeah, um, yep. Um, so I'm curious, and I don't know if you um, have much time to talk about this part, but I'm really curious about the change that happens with the out-of-home care system. Um, and just the, the role that you played in all of that too, to go from having 140 young people in the one space to now having like maximum four in a space. Yeah. Um, like what sort of, what what was that process like and how much role did you play in that?
1: Well, I, I was in charge of the the process of, of working out how to actually do it. So it was a two-part process. One is I had to convince them that we could do it and we should do it. And... I won't go into the, the finances of it, but financially it was viable because the institutions cost a lot of money. Mm. Okay. The, 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 vibe, the why we should do it was in Victoria, um, we were locking up young people at a much higher rate than other states. So for young women, the incarceration rate for young women in Victoria was four or five times all of the other states.
0: Really? Why was that?
1: It's an interesting thing. So they were, what they if uh, they were all made wards of the state. That's what they called people in care in those days. And if you were made a ward of the state, you could be incarcerated on an, administ- an administrative decision. Wow. So to make so if you were a 16-year-old female and ward of the state and I was a middle-level bureaucrat within the department I could simply take you to a detention centre and leave you there. Wow. And there was no appeal through the courts.
0: Yep, so there didn't have to be a criminal charge, no. nothing.
1: It was simply... And it was it was morals, you know, in the sense the young person was in moral danger.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I'm exaggerating a bit. Uh, yeah, a yeah, bit of here, course, but, of
0: course. I'm sure, yeah, yeah.
1: Yep. But that's the, you know... So I was opposed to um, detention by administrative order, mm-hmm. okay? And then I was opposed... Where, for young women, they went to a facility called Layton out in uh, Nardewadding, and then they were subject to what I believe to be compulsory treatment. So there was a group mm. therapy program, and they had to participate. Wow. So I was opposed to uh, incarceration, uh, administrative incarceration and compulsory treatment. Mm. And so that was the issue that really burned for me, that... We had to have a system whereby a court or a judge made the decision yep. about who should go in and how long they should stay for, and there should not be compulsory treatment. Yeah, wow. And that was that was the the my burning desire at that time
0: yeah, yeah yeah i'm so glad you actually did a lot of that work <laughs> <laughs>
1: thank you yeah
0: um you have done quite a lot of important work and you've like often worked with young people who have experienced trauma or you've worked with staff who are supporting them as well i'm curious as to like what led you there why did you choose this line of work <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, um, the, i've never
0: asked you that <laughs>
1: no um the the re- reason with discovery of psychology so um, I was raised as a Catholic and went to a Jesuit school, and um, you, m- you may have noticed this that I can be particularly argumentative at times. And, <laughs> and during we had to have a religion class every day for forty minutes, and the Jesuits got got sick of me, so sick of me being argumentative, they kicked me <laughs> out, and I had to go to the library. But were
0: you challenging the content that was being delivered? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, I was. I mean, because <laughs> they were saying, you know, the the pill is morally wrong, and you're sort of saying, well, you know, there are Anyway, so <laughs> in the library, there was a, um, a single psychology text, Introduction to Psychology, with a chapter on personality you know, uh, disorders and perception. I was just transfixed by it. So I became more argumentative so they would send me to the library. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you had this like system going on, right? <laughs> yeah. be- like, Behaviour is think-
1: shaped by its consequences. <laughs> so, uh, I became more argumentative and it was a win-win situation. They didn't have me and I was up there with my psychology textbook. Yep. Um, and that was really the beginning of it in the sense that, you know, it was just chance really and um, I knew then that I wanted to be a psychologist. But at that stage, I was, and I'm still, that view now is in the sense... It's one thing to be a psychologist for relatively war- uh, wealthy people, what they call unfortunately worried well, um, but then to use psychology for people whose lives have been really traumatized is a different sort of set of people that you're working with. Mm. And I always wanted to work with that set of people, okay, rather than the more wealthy people who may have been anxious. Yeah, uh, And that's I haven't I've done that for a lot of my career in terms of working with people who've experienced you know significant trauma in their life like, yeah. like you have.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. yeah, I think very similar stance to me, yeah yes. around you know like because even when I graduated, I, I really didn't see myself going into a mainstream school and I, to me, I actually thought there's enough teachers in that space. like yeah. there are teachers in that space and those kids will find a teacher they connect with in those spaces. Yeah. And there's plenty of people that can offer that. And I just thought to myself, that's not where I want to go.
1: So what what led you to that decision? I didn't want to go there. I wanted to work with Traumatised. What was the...
0: Um, the well, it was interesting. Their... So I did actually have a little bit of experience before we met. Yeah. Um, so while I was studying, teaching, I actually worked at a, a school in my hometown that was mm. four kids who um, were excluded from mainstream school. Mm. Um, but it was it was still quite different. Like, it was still... Um, it was actually referred to even as a behavior school. Like, yes. you know, we weren't quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I worked as a teacher's aide there. So I just, but my role there literally was they employed me to support one young person. Um, and my role was to go to his house, wake him up in the morning. He was 16. Um, I like go, like talk to his mum, get mm. wait for him to be ready to school and then would catch the bus together. And then I'd support him at school for the day. Um, so part of my role was to actually get him to school as well so that he could finish year 10. Um, and I just got so much joy out of just chatting to him on the bus and just like Mm -hmm. knowing that he was going to finish year 10, if I could get him there, um, the days that I worked with him. Um, but yeah, so when I actually studied teaching though, I actually almost chose social work. So Mm -hmm. I was sitting on the fence. I applied for both, Mm -hmm. sat on the fence for a little bit. Um, and then while I studied teaching, I was pretty turned off by some of the things I learned and Mm -hmm. I just never saw myself going into a mainstream classroom. Um, so, at the end of my study, I thought, well, you know, I, I want to sort of blend something to do with social work and teaching together if it's possible. Yeah. And then I saw that job advertise and I thought, I'll, I'll see what happens. It, yeah.
1: It's interesting your route because mine was similar in the sense. So, I was in psychology um, at uni and there was a program run by the Student Guild uh, uh, providing tutoring to disadvantaged students. Ah, uh, yeah. And so I signed up for that, and um, the, the the students I had were in a children's home in Perth. Not quite as big as the one here, but only had ninety children on, on campus. And so I was tutoring this young boy at this children's home. And then they holidays came and they said, Do you want a job? you know, working here. And of course I said yes. So it was just funny how yeah, things work out. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: And because even that job that I was doing, that was just advertised through our uni forum. Yeah. Um, it just got put up and said, "Oh, if anyone's interested in working at a behaviour school, yeah, um, here's this job." So I just went, "Oh, I'd be curious to learn more and give that a go." Yeah. Um, yeah. My
1: challenge was always to work with, you know, very dysregulated behaviour. Mm. That's what I really focused on early in my career.
0: Yeah,
1: um, yeah. And even now, I work with highly suicidal. Uh, people, which is a dysregulated form Absolutely. of behaviour. Absolutely, yep. um, And I find that um, yeah, challenging and worthwhile.
0: Yeah. Mm, yep. which is interesting. I guess, like, because even for me, like, you know, obviously you've seen me deal with dysregulated yep. behaviour and we've unpacked that together a lot of times too. Like, the more you do it, the more you do uh, learn those skills that we talked about, that self-control. Yes. That self-regulation, the skills to actually do it um, develop, you know, over time if, if you're willing to learn. Um, and when you do have that skill set and the knowledge of trauma and all of that sort of stuff, it, yes. it doesn't actually unsettle you in the same ways no. that people would assume.
1: It, that's true. Yeah, yeah. People will say to me, how do you deal with people who are suicidal? Well, you just do, you know, in the sense, I don't um, become distressed when they're suicidal. You know, that's the, it, that's the issue. If you become distressed, then it makes it worse for them because they feel, how can you cope with this? I'm telling you, this. these... these Terrible things, and you're not coping. I'm going to stop telling you. Yeah, this exactly, sort of exactly. And these yeah. people need someone. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So and so, if you can do it. So you, in psychological terms, you call it containment, in the sense that you can contain what they're saying, mm. um, and be empathetic, but not overly distressed by it.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, so. which does happen over time. So I guess if there are people listening that are early in the field and they, they do have a great mentor and they are developing those skills, yes, they can learn that it can get better.
1: <laughs> okay. I, but the men- coming back to the mentor, Megan, mentors mm. are critical. They are. I, I just don't see how you can learn mm. such complex skills um, where you've got to take feedback on your own person and how you behave and yeah. who you are yeah. unless you have someone you can trust.
0: It's so true. It's so yeah. true. And the other thing that I just thought of too was the power of effective debriefing. Yes. Which once again brings in that mentor element anyway. Like if, it, if your mentor can be involved in that. Yes. Um That's so critical as well. I'm um, The more work I'm doing with um, places at the moment, the more I'm learning. There's so many places doing assumed debriefing. Of course. And like, yeah, they just assume that there's people that they trust in their workplace yeah. that are talking to each other after a hard day or after an incident or a hard moment. Mm. And like, oh, it's, it's astounding to me to hear that. Like I get really worried when I'm hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me as well, and I know that you used to lead some of the debriefs that we would have as well. So you yeah. would, yeah, if there was a huge incident that happened, you would often appear yes. that afternoon so we could unpack it.
1: But it's a complex skill to debrief or unpack. It
0: is. It, it is. It, it, it
1: really is. It is. Yeah. And people um, make the assumption that anyone can do it. I'm not so sure about that.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm starting to like. I'm reading a lot more about effective debriefing at the yeah. moment. It's something I'm getting really curious about.
1: Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of evidence around how debriefing can actually be harmful yeah. if you if you do it badly. Yep. So I think there's a well-known experiment after a fire, I think it was, where the debriefers, the counsellors sort of say, you know, if you have any flashbacks or you can't sleep or anything like that, then you need to come and see us. And of course, they're prompting the flashbacks and the lack oh, of sleep.
0: Yeah.
1: So in the sense, debriefing needs to be neutral, you know, which might be, um, well... What, what have you noticed about yourself now after the fire versus before the fire? Have you noticed anything has changed for you? Yeah, and it's those type of questions you really need to learn, or else you will you could cause the person to become distressed by feeding them the line. So yeah, yeah,
0: that's an interesting one as well. Yeah, mm. there's something that I think um because. Like, I often always just used to think of debriefing as a just vent it out or get it out. Yes. Um, but when it got structured in the way you used to do it as well, like, we would actually unpack what happened, why it might have happened. Yeah. W- but then how well we managed the incident yes. was the real key because that was that skill development work and the reflective practice going on. Yes. But I think a lot of workplaces think debriefing isn't. Like when I'm hearing these assumed debriefing models going on, that's just staff venting to each other, which is also very dangerous and unhealthy.
1: I I agree. I mean, venting is overrated. It is important, but in the sense in a professional environment, you need to take it to the next step, whereby you sort of say, well, how could we prevent this from happening? Now, Megan, the problem with that is that You know, you have to allow people to make mistakes. Yeah, for sure. And not hang them out to dry when they make a mistake. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they're frightened. They're going to be hung out to dry if I tell them that I made a mistake. Mm. So it's a complex environment, really. It is. So tricky. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Um. So, Graham, we're getting close to the end of our time together. Could talk all day. (laughs) Thank you. Likewise. Um. But I do end each podcast with a series of five questions that I ask each guest. Sure. Um, and ultimately what I'm looking for is just your gut answer. So you don't have to take too long to think. Okay. Um, you're meant to just go with your gut instinct and okay. just say whatever comes up. Um, so the first question is, what did you want to be when you were a kid? So maybe pre-Catholic uh, school psychology books.
1: <laughs> play <laughs> cricket. For, play cricket for Australia. Oh, really? Yeah. Cricket
0: player, interesting. I, got to, I,
1: got, yeah, that wasn't, I knew that wasn't going to happen by the time I was 11, but yeah, yeah, yeah that was true. Yeah. Then psychology, yes.
0: Okay, well, I'm glad you found psychology. Yes. Because I'm not sure about cricket. (laughs) Um, The second one, what are your two top values? You can only pick two.
1: Only two. Wow. Um, I guess I admire people who have a trait that I might call intellectual openness is in the sense they can take on board different sides of an argument. So if you use our previous discussion, Mm. you you know, someone who could sort of say, I say to them, look, interviews are very impressionistic, you, you know, you could be just uh, being conned here. They'll sort of say, well, Graham, tell me more about how that might happen. So they could see both sides rather than be defensive and sort of say, you know, I couldn't be tricked by anyone. So it's that intellectual openness that I think is important. Um, look, the other one, I don't know whether it's a character trait or what, but is warmth. Yeah. If, you, if you want to work with traumatised people, Somehow or another, you have to project a sense of warmth.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you've named some two really powerful ones. That's great. The next question's quite funny, so I'll be curious to hear your answer for this one. So this is more for my interest's um, sake. But if you were going to have a boxing fight, <laughs> what would be your walkout song?
1: So they play after I won or after I lost? No, As you walk out. Oh, so, as you walk out. Yeah,
0: so it's like your entrance song.
1: Oh, well, my partner would say... Um, Frank Sinatra's "My Way," but I'm not sure <laughs> that's a compliment. But uh, I I would probably go with the if, if to for a song to rev me up. Yeah. Um, it would be the Rolling Stones. Give me shelter. Yeah. Oh,
0: nice, good yeah. answer, yeah. and quicker than I thought. I thought you'd be like, oh, I've never even thought about this. Um, question four: If you could collaborate with anyone in the field, dead or alive, who would it be?
1: Well, it'd be obviously a psychologist. Um, I don't, there, there are. Three, um, one would be, well, one, um, it's, it's a hard one. Um, I mentioned before that uh, I work with people with borderline personality disorder with a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy. Now, it was invented by a woman called Marsha Linehan. She's still alive. Uh, she's brilliant. Um, I would, yeah, I would like to meet her in person because she really came up with a way to help highly suicidal people in a way that no one had thought of before. Amazing. So Marcia Linehan would be that one. The others would be psychologists, you know, uh, Scott uh, Lillianfeld and Michael Rutter and places like that, But people like that. But Marsha would be it, yeah.
0: Yeah, good answer. I like that. Um, and the last question is, if you could recommend um, just one thing that everyone could do as a step towards healing, what would it be? Uh,
1: look, um I, I guess the, 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 there'd be something along the lines, Megan, of finding someone who you could talk to and just say how you feel.
0: Mm.
1: Okay? Mm. I feel like shit. I feel... Uh, I feel it, 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 if you could just t- just tell someone what the emotion is that you're experiencing. Yep. I think that would be... And not everyone can do that and you would know in traumatized population that's very difficult
0: absolutely that can take so long yeah, yeah but that
1: would be it tell tell someone um how you're feeling yeah
0: yeah i love that so like choosing someone that will actually absolutely hear you
1: yes but i yeah. think it, it, it's more in the sense you need to yeah you, know, it, it, you need to sort of say look i'm feeling this way you know yeah. and the person has to listen yeah. to you and validate the feelings but that's that's it. I, yeah. Even if it's irrational that you feel that way, you know, you, you, that's the how I would suggest you start. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Graham, for those answers. But it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah, I never thought, you know, in 2011, that one day I would start a podcast <laughs> and that I'd interview you. Um, so I'm so grateful to be able to have this opportunity to record this conversation with you.
1: Megan, I appreciate it too. The, the, the time's gone very quickly and I've really enjoyed our discussion. So thank Great. you.
0: Thank you thank you wonderful listeners for making it right to the end of the podcast. We appreciate you. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe, give us a rating. We'll be dropping a new episode roughly once per fortnight, so you can stay tuned for the next one. Thank you.